Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the extensive aid that the United States is giving to Ukraine. We're going to talk about the rumors of Moldova getting drawn into the war and my epiphany on the future of contemporary Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Before we get into the rapid-fire news, I want to thank my lovely listener, Harold, for letting me know that last week's episode was like two seconds long, and I had to do a, a re-upload so that uh, uh, half my audience could get it, because it was going fine for, at first, and, and I was looking at the numbers, and then it just stopped, and I'm like, what's happening? Well, I, I figured out that it stopped after uh, he told me. Uh, he sent me a voicemail, well, voice message through the Anchor app. So that was nice. And I was able to do the re-upload thanks to him. So thank you for telling me about that. Because I, I wouldn't have found out until yesterday when I was putting together the episode for today. So thank you very much for that. And now, now we're going to get into this episode. And I'll definitely, definitely be looking out for that now, from now on. So that uh, I can get the re-upload out faster than Wednesday. You know, we upload on Mondays. Well, uh, today I'm later than usual. Uh, whatever. I'm going <laughs> to thank you, Harold. But now we're going to get into the rapid-fire news. So, Nancy Pelosi has visited Zelensky, and then she visited Poland. So it seems to be the trend of U.S. lawmakers to take a vacation from the United States and go see the sights in Ukraine and Poland. They're, those are their favorite tourist destinations these days. And, you know, you know, you get a nice glimpse of the war. Then you stop by Warsaw and you get a, you get a Vienna sausage. And, you, you know, you talk about how much money you're going to give away that isn't actually yours. And then you go home and you feel better about yourself, even though you screw over everyone else at home. Ah, politics. Anyway, we have OPEC signing a deal for $14 million in funding for the second phase of the Nigeria-Morocco natural gas pipeline project. So that's essentially a pipeline that's going to cross the Sahara Desert from Nigeria to Morocco. But it'll be interesting to see how they get that accomplished, given that the area between Nigeria and Morocco is a literal war zone. The Second Great African War is what I call it, and it definitely earns its title in blood. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens, if it happens. I'm sure they're determined to get it done, but there's a, quite the obstacle in the way. We might see much more military action being taken from Nigeria to sort of establish a safe zone long enough to get the pipeline built. Or who knows, maybe even win the war and... Maybe annex parts of Nigeria as well, you know, just to, just to secure the border, you know, just, you know, just, I don't know. Hmm. Could we be, there are many predictions that Nigeria is going to be a superpower 
And while I don't know if superpower would be accurate, definitely great power might be. And this might be the step one. They have been more militarily active recently, you know. Given their, their population compared to all of their neighbors, they could definitely easily dominate their immediate region. Especially if they get this pipeline up and running. And then they have gas, and that enables them to continue industrializing. Probably at an even better and faster rate than most of the rest of Africa. It could happen, but the obstacle of those Islamist militants are there, so we'll see what they do. Uh, Ukraine has accused Russia of stealing grain uh, in occupied territories. And if this is true, which it likely is, you know, just to be fair, if it's true, it would constitute yet another article of siege warfare uh, and would add another layer onto the siege because they're sieging down cities and then they're sieging down the country by taking the food. And in all likelihood, Russia's probably going to go for that land corridor f stretching from the Donbass all the way to Transnistria and Odessa, which would cut Ukraine off from the sea. And that in and of itself would be another layer of siege warfare because now you're cut off from the sea you're cut off from a line of supply which is all which is what siege warfare is all about and if all your supplies have to come by land something that can very easily be bombed by russia because it has to come by road or railroad well that makes the siege even easier siege warfare is what we are witnessing in ukraine and if they really are har uh, stealing, I was gonna, I was look, trying to look for a word, but I'll go back to stealing. If they really are stealing all this grain, that's siege warfare, my friends. Uh, but speaking of siege warfare, uh, the siege of Av Azovstal, which is uh, the industrial complex within Mariupol, has the the evacuation there has begun. I said siege, but I guess the siege there is ending because the, the evacuation has begun. People are fleeing north to the city of Zaporizhia, and that city will probably come under siege in the near future as well. So they'll probably have to move again, but at the very least, they get that brief rep reprieve. There's civil unrest in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. You have Japan and Indonesia, who are now in agreement to work together to bring the Ukraine war to a peaceful conclusion. Uh, we'll see if they're able to do that, because the peace talks literally just failed. So, I'm pretty sure Russia's going to grab up uh, a nice chunky bit of land before they come back to the table. And then I'm pretty sure the Americans are going to actively encourage Ukraine to sabotage the talks. And then they're going to go back to war. Uh, that's, I mean, that's what happened with the last round of talks. Maybe if Ukraine gets thrashed enough, they might come back. But if they get thrashed hard enough, they might just decide to commit to total war at the same time. So you can never really tell where things like this are going to go um, in that regard. But you can generally tell who's going to win in a situation like this. And it's most likely going to be Russia. In other news, Germany and India have signed a $10 billion green energy development deal where they're going to be assisting the construction of green energy projects. But in the case of Germany specifically, will this and similar deals which are likely to come in the future, will this be enough to compensate for the gas 
that they will no longer be getting from Russia. They have until the winter. They have until the winter. No, that's not a lot of time. All right, it seems like a lot, but it really isn't. You're talking what six months from now? Uh, well, six months from now would be November. That they'd be in some deep trouble if they didn't have something set up by then. But that's not a lot of time. So I'm really interested to see how Germany handles this, uh, the gas situation moving forward. Because they have the out of Nord Stream 2 if they choose to use it. But will they? Uh, but while we're on the topic of energy, though, uh, the EU energy ministers from uh, the member states of the EU, they've agreed to continue paying for Russian gas in dollars and euros for, specifically, existing contracts. This is sort of a, a legal workaround to Russia's demand that everyone pay for the gas in rubles because they're going off the contract, which were negotiated in terms of euros and dollars. So, the legal workaround, then again, Russians could just choose not to give them the gas, and then their, their fancy workaround means nothing. So, we'll see what, we'll see what both sides do here. Meanwhile, there's protests in Greece over rising gas prices, and we're probably going to see more protests across the continent on that one. There's a petition in Germany, though, to not send heavy weapons systems to Ukraine, and it gained 77,000 signatures. So this sort of conflicts on the home front with Germany finally getting its stuff together a little bit with regards to its military. Uh, the you know the, the increase in the budget, the one-time increase, and then the doubling of the annual budget. You know, so we'll see which direction Germany ends up going in in the end. Because Ger Germany's in a really interesting spot. They they become very very interesting lately. Uh, in many ways, not so good, but potentially something good might come out of this. You know, pressure does make diamonds, and you know after it crushes you for a little bit. The UN, though, has claimed that 5.4 million Ukrainians have fled the country. And I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later on. Well, a lot later on is at the end of the episode. But I'm going to be talking about it, alright? Because I had something special happen while I was out driving. And I, it took me a while to write it all down, So, which is why the episode is so late today. But there's that. The EU has demanded an answer from Chinese authorities over the detainment of a staffer from the EU's delegation in China who has been stuck in China for eight months now. So the, and, and China has said nothing about him and has said nothing to the EU about whether he's okay or not. So they're getting a... They're taking a tougher stance, which I get... It's good that they're doing that, but, you know, eight months is a long time. And I imagine the Chinese may or may not respond anyway. But speaking of China, rail traffic between China and North Korea has been temporarily suspended due to China's latest COVID restrictions. Now, these are restrictions uh, for the rest of the country that they aren't as bad as Shanghai, but they've now begun blocking the cross-border trade between them and some of their neighbors. And, of course, the lockdowns in Shanghai are global news. But we'll see what happens with China. I imagine they'll still bounce back just due to the size of their economy and the 
importance that they hold to literally everyone with regards to trade because they make everything. And that's the power of having a manufacturing base and not selling it out to go overseas, not outsourcing your production. When you produce things, you can do weird shit and get away with it. Like China will get away with this. Um, not, that, not that they're deliberately trying to screw over everyone else, but, you know, they can do things like this and bounce back very quickly because they have physical production. Even in the events of economic downturn, having manufacturing makes your economy stronger, not weaker. So we're going to see China bounce back eventually when they get out of this, you know, but we'll see. But as a side note to that, uh, back when the pandemic first hit, remember how everyone was talking about how we needed to do what China did to fight COVID and how China got COVID right and it was and that was used as sort of the, the basis and the base template for the entire world to pursue lockdowns as if that were the only solution to COVID? You remember that? I, I know I know it was two million years ago and I'm really showing my age here, but comparing that to the response people have given to the recent lockdowns in China and Shanghai specifically, uh, which range from, would they range anywhere from that's horrific to, eh, I don't care. It's just crazy to think of all the nonsense we've had to endure for people and mainly governments to finally get their heads right about this COVID stuff. And man, I got so tired of hearing, this is going to be the new normal. Uh, get away from me. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm like, ain't going to be no new normal. This is not the plague. It just wasn't. And even after the plague, there wasn't a new normal. People just went back to their daily lives and recovered. So why there would be a new normal after COVID-19, where there wasn't a new normal after the Black Death, was beyond me. But... Ah, those were words that were all but illegal to say at the time. But they're not illegal anymore. Yeah, so I'm saying. But uh, anyway, needless to say, I'm very satisfied with the current mood towards lockdowns. And I say good riddance to them. But that's the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of the episode. The thick, juicy meat of the episode in just a moment. All right. We're back and we're going to talk about the extensive U.S. aid for Ukraine and why it's bad. <laughs> so last week, Biden asked Congress for an additional $33 billion in aid to Ukraine, saying that it was critical for Congress to approve the deal to help Ukraine defend itself. This deal included around $20 billion in military aid, 8 billion in economic aid and another 3 billion in humanitarian aid. He said it's not cheap and went on to say but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. And on that note I'd like to remind everyone that Ukraine still isn't a NATO member so we wouldn't be caving on anything if we let them fight on their own I'm just going to just going to leave that just gonna leave that on the table. I'm just gonna leave that on the table. But continuing, continuing, not long after this request, which was ultimately approved by Congress, uh, Congress passed the they they passed the 
Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of 2022 in a astonishing 417 to 10 House vote, which came after a unanimous Senate vote. So this is what you bastards can be unanimous on. Ugh. Fuck. Ugh. I can't stand these people. <laughs> I can't stand these people. Infrastructure for America? No. War and weapons for Ukraine? Money for Ukrainian pensions? Yes. I, I, I don't even know what to say. I'll be honest. I was so upset when I read this the first time. My initial response would have got me canceled immediately. I won't even bother sharing it on the podcast. <laughs> but I was upset. Uh, disgusted even. I'm like, why? Why would we do this? What obligation do we have to Ukraine to where this was necessary? Because it really isn't. You know? You know? I mean, the point of having an alliance is that it's exclusive. Your alliance, if it's supposedly defensive, if it's a supposedly defensive alliance, then you defend countries within the alliance, not everybody who is outside the alliance. Ukraine is not a NATO member. So why we'd be going to such extensive lengths to help them in their war against Russia is almost beyond me. And it would be completely beyond me if I didn't have the crucial context that the United States overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014 and installed a puppet regime. We're protecting the puppet regime, and that's what this is. That's what it is, you know. Uh, if, if you don't know that the United States overthrew the government, then it would be more difficult to understand. And I, I'd spend like a good half hour ranting about it if... I didn't have that piece of context, but I do, and I share it with you every week, because, you know, it, it for some reason, doesn't get shared very much. Um, I, is it propaganda? Maybe, although I think it's, it's not so much propaganda on the part of most other people, it's just a lack of context, or maybe even just a refusal to view our own country that way because i'll be honest with you no american uh wants to view america as evil or being the bad guy although many of them will tell you we've done bad things but that and the people we've installed is a bit too much but uh i i guess that's why i guess that's why i get to be so daringly dashingly correct on all this while so many others get it wrong but that just means i become a valuable source of half decent information but uh anyway we uh, the bill passed in almost two unanimous votes and Congress hopes that the act will allow the u.s companies to bypass bureaucratic roadblocks and more easily supply Ukraine. Uh, and my response to that was a bit more family friendly than the first one. And uh, I guess I can share it with you. 
my response to that was fucking gag me with a goddamn spoon because the last time we used the Lend-Lease Act, it was to fight the Nazi, right? It was to fight the Nazi. Now we're using it to aid and abed the Nazis. And it's just, uh, I'll be honest with you, I felt disgusted. Uh, I really did. I don't, I don't get that sort of feeling on many things, but just reading it, I was so distraught, you know, no, I, I already know I'm in the, the minority on this one, the, the the staunchest of minorities. But that's where I stand. I, I didn't like it. Um, I don't know what else to tell you. Well, I, I can tell you plenty, but uh, it would include a whole lot of swearing and hard ERs. But um, anyway, yeah, but... We used the Lindley Sack to fight the Nazis last time. Now we're using it to aid and abed Nazis. It's like, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Oh, we overthrew the Ukrainian government and installed these people. And now, instead of letting them rot and float out to sea, we're going to die on the hill of Ukraine. We're going to make Zelensky into a hero. And we're going to pretend that Ukraine doesn't have a Nazi issue, or we're we're going to minimalize the Nazi issue in Ukraine at the very when we do admit to it. That's 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 a terrible strategy. This is just going to backfire on America's public image as a whole, and the people who are most concerned with our credibility with our allies are going to be the ones to take the biggest hit here. Now, I don't care too much about the credibility with the allies because I don't mind leaving them all high and dry, but. For many people, the credibility among U.S. with its allies is an important thing. But I I stress those folks, if you happen to be listening, to really think about this. What does it say to your allies that you died on the hill of defending Nazis? Because that's where this is going to go. We can only pretend Ukraine is not a Nazi state. For so long. Until it just becomes too much to hide. And then we get to the. Yeah they're Nazis. But phase. And that's just. That, that's just going to be a, a incredibly terrible look for the country. And by default. A terrible look for me. Because I live here. I, I, I am in this country. I'm a citizen of this country. I'm not trying to catch that flack. Or have that smeared across the history of my country. But it appears that that's exactly where it's going to end up. That's going to be one very hard to remove shit stain on an already complicated history. Uh, well, as complicated as 200 and something years can be. But uh, I, I'm just, I'm just going to leave that on the table. I'm just going to leave that on the table. We fought the Nazis with it the last time. Now we're helping the Nazis. And... And I guess an observation uh, before I move on, though, is that the Congress has admitted that the bureaucracy blocks companies from doing things that they could be doing uh, that would be useful to people. But they have to do they have to use legislation to allow them to bypass the other legislation because the other legislation gets in the way. Now, imagine what that would do if that was just the state of the economy, you know, a little bit of deregulation here and there. Then you get 
little companies and everyone doesn't have to be dependent on the big companies and whenever the big companies act up you can just go to your local aff affiliate your your local store so that you can take business away from big menace and then they don't get to do weird shit and like hurt the american people and still get money from the government while they do so you know things like that you know just uh just food for thought as well i let the capitalism seep in you know just <laughs> yeah but uh where is my i lost track of where i went in my notes there we go there we go there we go. all right so that, that that's one thought but the other thought that i had uh upon reading this was that it was just really bizarre really really bizarre to see vladimir putin be compared directly to hitler like there there's there's no restraint on those those comparisons and there's an endless number of them it's bizarre to see him be compared to hitler as if he was a nazi and then that becomes a rationale to support actual nazis like these people fly ss thunderbolts like they were the stars and stripes i'm not supporting them this is ridiculous and we're gonna give them all this money and all these weapons in the hope that they can pull a W out the rear end. No. But as unlikely as that is, as unlikely as it is, let's entertain that thought for a moment. You know me. I love me some speculation. So let's speculate. What happens if Ukraine does win? What happens then? Now, most people probably haven't thought that far ahead um j just based off my observations of other people who do the things that i do they haven't really thought that far ahead and to be fair to them because i i do dog on my competition quite a lot but to be fair to them i didn't think about it either until a, a few days ago because i still don't think that they're gonna win but i had an epiphany i had an epiphany and i'll tell you about it later uh, but as far as what happens in the event that Ukraine does win with all this aid that we're giving you, I'll tell you what happens next. We will have given the only Nazi regime in the world everything it needs to try its hand at taking over Europe just like its predecessor did. How so, you may ask? Well, here's how so. They'll be the most militarized country in Europe, still mobilized for war, with only one direction for them to expand, and it won't be into another war with Russia. If they fight the war against Russia, well then the Russians are going to be on home turf, and Ukraine's going to get stomped on, because the Russians won't hold back this time. They're going to get shit stomped. If they go after Russia, so they're not going to go that way. They're going to attack in the opposite direction. They won't expand towards Russia. They'll expand into the disarmed, militarily weak heart of Europe. In addition to NATO's eastern fringes. With the obvious exception of Russia. Ukraine, if they win, with all this aid we're giving them... They're going to have the largest standing army in Europe and the most experienced army in Europe. Their troops are going to be some of the most well-equipped, 
not just in Europe, but in the world. Ukraine's going to have more Javelin anti-tank missiles than they're going to know what to do with. They're going to have the most artillery in Europe. They're going to have tens of billions in currency reserves to cushion the cost of a war, even without additional U.S. aid. And all the people who were so very, very eager to intervene in order to help Ukraine will immediately switch gears and use the problem that they created to justify even more intervention. This time, to fight Ukraine instead of Russia. And the most aggravating part of that will be the open admission by interventionists and advocates of America being an interventionist power, the open admission of these people that, yes, U.S. intervention created the problem, dot, 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 but we have to intervene again because America has to do something. Ugh, I can, I can see it now, and I can already feel the disgust in the back of my throat, right along with the low-intensity headache I know I'll have listening to these people talk themselves and my country into a circle, the never-ending cycle of war and intervention. And then, you know how we always talk about how, oh, we can't leave, there'll be a power vacuum, and we take out one guy, but if we leave, then someone worse will replace him. And it's like, well, maybe if we weren't there, you know, we'd, we just let nature take its course, and the people living there will deal with them. You know, that that's always a possibility, just like it's happened throughout, you know, all of human history, but... Apparently, history only moves when we say it does. Uh, whatever you say, you know, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't know anything. I'm, I'm just a, a citizen who lives here, you know, just, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it, it's very annoying. I'll say that much. But that's what we we're going to be looking at in the event of Ukraine winning. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen, though. And more likely what's going to happen is that all that money and all the weapons we're sending them will end up in a Russian weapons storage and in the coffers of the Russian central bank. That's what the, the, the Russian treasury, that's where the money's going to go. And the weapons are going to be taken to Russian military bases, taken to Russian laboratories, military science laboratory. They're going to study all those American weapons, all those juicy American drones and the javelins, and the stingers, and the artillery pieces, and the rockets. They're going to study all the guns, all the books. They're going to get, basically, a, a technology-sharing agreement with the United States without getting a technology-sharing agreement with the United States. And we won't get the same in return. So they'll know how to counter us and our weapons. They might even be able to use our stuff to improve their own weapons by seeing potential flaws in our systems that if they used their technology it could make a superior weapon to what both of us have or that vice versa they could use they could see flaws in their own stuff use technology from us to make a superior weapon to what both of us have again maybe they can make something entirely new with what they learn it, they get this all this technology is what they're going to get when they win just like Afghanistan when the Islamic Emirate strode through and 
the soldiers of the Islamic Republic just dropped the weapons and ran away. And then you had big-ass cartloads of equipment and weapons and helicopters that were just left behind. And now the Taliban is one of the most well-armed military forces on the planet, certainly within their region. If Iran wasn't a great power, oh, well, a regional one, not quite great yet, if Iran didn't have a million-man army, the Taliban would be the dominant power of the, the region. Didn't if Iran didn't have a million-man army, and Pakistan didn't have nukes, Afghanistan would be a whole menace to their neighborhood. Like, we got lucky that Afghanistan's neighbors are as strong as they are. Now, had we had our way, Iran would have been a failed state, and that would have been uh, the Taliban just walking into parts of Iran. Because th that's if you look at the map of those military bases, all those NATO and U.S. bases, and how they were trying to encircle Iran, and that was the, that was the new plan. We, we invaded Iraq, we invaded Syria, we invaded all the other countries, and that, then we were going to do the same to Iran, and uh, just the never-ending war, you know. But we got lucky that we did not get our way on that one, or at least the, the war hawks in Washington didn't get their way. If I got my way, we wouldn't have been there, and we still wouldn't be there. You know, everyone says they we should have never been there, and then they rush headfirst into the next war. But uh, we're lucky that Iran and Pakistan are as strong as they are. Otherwise, the Taliban would have plenty of room to get some some Laban's round, they'd, they'd have everything they needed. Who was going to be able to fight them with all that equipment? Nobody. And now you're talking a country that already has a strong military like Russia gaining access to the technology of their peer power? They'd be a, a menace. They'd be a whole menace. And they'd be effectively untouchable for the next decade. Untouchable. Because they have hypersonic missiles and we don't. Alright, so this is like the ground level stuff that they can improve on for free <laughs> while they focus and double down on hypersonics. And then there's the money. It's, there's so much. And we're still giving them more. We're, this isn't going to be the end. We're, we just gave them $14 billion and then he's already talking about another $33 billion. Well, Where does it end? We, we just gave them $14 billion. We're, we're up to what, 50 billion now? 50 billion in aid to Ukraine. We can at least expect another 50 billion to go to them now with the Lend-Lease Act brought back from the grave where it should have stayed. But seriously, we're giving all, uh, all this money we're giving to Ukraine. With all the money we're giving to them, every Russian soldier participating in the invasion will have their retirement paid for by the U.S. government. It's madness. And I, uh, <laughs> I guess if you couldn't tell by now, I don't stand with Ukraine. But if you do stand with Ukraine, then good on you for listening to a, an actually differing point of view <clears throat> and boosting my <clears throat> viewership numbers. I love you all, even when I think you're wrong. <laughs> but that's where the money's going to go. I can guarantee it. I, that, that's where the weapons are going to go. I can guarantee it. It's either that or some rogue terrorist group that pops up out of nowhere. And, oh, no, they have all these U.S. weapons. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, no, no, no. I guess we have to go intervene to go fight them. 
I can already see it. It's so predictable. I can see it from three million miles away. And then we're still going to walk into it. And it's, ugh. I can't stand my government. I can't stand looking or listening at my government right now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go to the part of the world where it's nicer to look at. So naturally, we're going to talk about war. That's a that's a whole oxymoron. But what isn't an oxymoron is Moldova. Because uh, we have some rumors here. Some, well, not quite rumors. It's actually real talk. Not real shit. Not real shit just yet. But real talk about Moldova getting drawn into the conflict over Transnistria. And for those who don't know... Transnistria is a breakaway republic from Moldova. It's the the thin strip of land between Moldova and Ukraine's southwestern border. It sort of like barely separates the country, the, the two countries, and there's Russian peacekeepers there. I think like 200 of them. So it's another, it's technically an independent country, you know, technically. But is effectively a Russian enclave, a second one in Europe, that outlines the Soviet border. Just a little bit. Kaliningrad is the Soviet border. Uh, Transnistria is almost there. Moldova would be the southern border. If it was between Moldova and Romania, it would have been, you know, the outline of the Soviet border. But it's close enough, you know, it's close enough to be important strategically. And because it is where it is, you know, smashed between Moldova and Ukraine, in the southwest of Ukraine, uh, the Russian troops that are stationed there at a time when Ukraine is at war makes Transnistria a threat to Ukraine. And it, a threat, it's a threat that's in Ukraine's rear, because most of Ukraine's troops are in the east and in the north, and in the in every other direction, except for where Transnistria is. So those Russian troops being the, just existing there makes Transnistria a threat, a strategic threat to Ukraine. So naturally, Ukraine would want to remove this threat, and they're looking to Moldova to help in doing that. But. If this came to pass, if it, if it actually happened and Moldova did get drawn into the war against Russia, because they'd have to be in favor for Ukraine to, you know, have them on their side for the taking of Transnistria. If they actually ended up at war with Russia over Transnistria, they, they could probably take Transnistria, you know, even a, a joint operation between Moldova and Ukraine could probably take Transnistria, even with the Russian troops there. But what that would essentially do in the long term is it would hand over Moldova to Russia virtually for free. Because Moldova doesn't have much in the way of a standing army uh, and when compared to the forces that Russia and Ukraine are putting up. It does, it, they basically, their army doesn't exist. Like, like sure... You could take Transnistria. But once the Russian troops in the south of Ukraine reach the Moldovan border, it's a wrap. It's a whole wrap. It, it'll become, they'll become an omelet at that point. 
the, a breakfast burrito is what Moldova will become as though gobbled up by the Russian steamroller. Because Russia and Ukraine are each fielding around 200,000 men each. With Russia having, well, excuse me, with Ukraine having on paper 900,000 in reserve. And Russia having just over 900,000 on active duty alone, which means having 700,000 troops that aren't are on active duty, but aren't even being used in the conflict. And Russia, on paper, has 2 million in their reserves. So, compare that to the five to 10,000 troops that Moldova has, they'll get stomped on. And it, it'll be very ugly. Well, maybe they'll get the Ukraine treatment. Maybe. Just maybe. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure Russia wouldn't mind gobbling them up as well. If you're gonna if you're gonna annex former Soviet territories, you may as well go the extra length to not trigger a people's war to rise up against you. Even even if you're gonna annex them, you know, just if they're you're already getting the territory for free because now they're at war with you and they declared the war, so technically you can just walk over there and now it's yours, you know. You know, just just minor rewriting of the war goals and oh, we've been declared war on and. You know, now we have to stay and keep the peace. <laughs> but th that's what it looks like from my perspective. And it seems like all these moves by countries who are not prepared for war in the slightest. All these moves that they are making to instigate conflict with Russia just backfire time and time again. I mean, I'm just waiting for Finland to fuck up. The that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for Finland to join NATO and then fuck up and get gobbled up by 100,000 Russian troops. And we all witness a repeat, not of the Russo Finnish, not of the Winter War. We may not see a repeat of the Winter War. We might see a repeat of the Continuation War, the lesser known war between Russia and Finland, where Finland got stomped and almost annexed again. But the Soviets let them be a neutral territory, and they stayed neutral for the rest of the entire Cold War. That's how bad they got beat. I'm pretty sure we're going to see the continuation war in this one. But they might go for the winter war. Who knows? Either way, they're not going to win. They're going to lose. They're going to lose, and they're going to lose badly. They're not prepared for war. They, they really aren't. And Moldova is even less prepared for war than Finland is. And at the very least, when Finland fucks up, they'll be a part of NATO. Moldova is a part of nothing. And they're, they're going to fuck up and get annexed for free. So what does that do? You hand over not just Ukraine by instigating the war between them. Uh, that, that's on America's bad for instigating this war. But then Ukraine drags Moldova into the conflict, and Moldova gets annexed. So you're talking the entire southern front being eliminated. Thousands of square miles annexed. And Russia actually ends up 
shortening the border because when you look at the border uh, of the Soviet Union versus the border that Russia has with Ukraine, the, the Soviet borders were actually shorter even though they had more land. It was due to the geography. You, you get you Moldova and Ukraine at the same time. And, well, congratulations, now you have an anchor between the Carpathian Mountains and the Black Sea, and Russia's going to gain strategic depth again. When this war is over, Russia will have something it hasn't had in a really, it, well, since the Soviet days, strategic depth, which is where your country, the, the amount of country that you have to cross to get to the heartland of Russia is huge and it wears down on logistics and enables the Russian counteroffense. The sheer size of Russia becomes a defense. And while Russia's incredibly big today, still, their capital isn't very far away from their western border in any direction. But you give them Ukraine and Moldova and Belarus as an ally. That gives them strategic depth again. You throw in a war with NATO that they're that they may or may not win, you know. You know but it's probable that they will win, and it'll be a lot more vicious than the treatment they're giving Ukraine. And they take the Baltics and Finland. That's ridiculous strategic depth. They'll be essentially untouchable by any European army for the next decade or two. You, know, you, you can never be too... You can never put, push those European predictions too far. You know, Europe changes a lot, even though it pretends it doesn't. Uh, just look at the borders from 1914 to... Ni well, actually, no. Look at the borders from 1900 to 1914. And see the collapse of the Ottomans. And then see 1914 to 18. And the collapse of all those empires. Then 1918 to 1939. And then 39 to 45. And then 45 to 1991. And then the day... And then 1991 to 1992. The borders of Europe changed constantly. Even just within the last hundred years. They're gonna change again. And that's probably gonna come with a war or two. If we're keeping it a buck fifty, but Russia will at the very least gain an incredible strategic position and it'll be handed over to it. It won't it won't even need to be the aggressor. It will only have aggressed upon Ukraine. Technically speaking. And even then it's because they're allied to the rebels. And Ukraine was aggressing upon the rebels for eight years. So even in that sense, Russia is still is only half the aggressor. So all these countries going after Russia, when they're not prepared for war or armed conflict, it's going to backfire on them. And Russia might walk away the with the biggest boatload of... the I can't even put into words. The, the W that they're set to gain from countries not thinking through their actions. The anti-Russia sentiment is going to get a lot of these countries killed if they're not careful with it. <clears throat> as much as you don't like Russia, Russia's a very powerful country. You can't just go, I hate you, I'm going to aid and abet your enemy 
oh, and by the way, I'm going to send troops in to occupy Transnistria. And then expect that they're just going to sit there and go, oh, that's fine. You know, just, we, we didn't want that anyway. No, they're, they're going to eat you alive. <laughs> they're going to eat you alive and they're going to take your country. Especially since you used to be a part of them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't mind getting Moldova back. It wasn't, it wasn't a part of the plan, but they'll take it. They wouldn't mind getting Finland back too. That they weren't even thinking about that one. But it, it, shoot, in for a penny, in for a pound. We who needs the Soviet Union when we can have we can go go gadget Russian Empire. That that that's where this is going. And then they'll have much more peaceful economic and military integrations with the Central Asia and the Caucasus countries. They'll get the preferential treatment because the. The, you know, Russia won't have to fight a war to rope them in. And then that's all of Russia's security concerns taken care of for the next decade or two. It's going to be a while before the Europeans are able to put something together to fight a Russia of that size and that scope and that wealth. Especially when they're sabotaging their own economies with the gas question and the issue with that. I think Russia might emerge from this a lot stronger than people think they will. But if if Moldova goes through with this, and to be fair to them, they really don't want to. But if they get drawn in, it's going to be the end of Moldova. Like again, this wasn't part of the plan. But if they if they go to war, Russia's going to eat them alive, and we're we're already starting to see Russia openly speak of integrating all of southern Ukraine into the same district as Crimea, which would imply staying there permanently. And who's to say that if Moldova declares an offensive war on Russia by doing this, that they don't just end up as spoils of war? If they go through with this, it's going to be the end of Moldova. I don't think they're ready for that. Actually, no, I know that they're not ready for that. They're, they're openly admitting they're not ready for the war. So they, they don't want to be a part of this, but they might get pushed into it by the combination of Ukraine and NATO. And then they're going to be the ones to lose second biggest because Ukraine's going to be the biggest loser here. And the fears of Russia not stopping at Ukraine and going on to invade their other neighbors would ironically be made into a reality by their neighbors including themselves and involving themselves in the war and all Russia had to do was nothing it'll be very interesting to see how things go but now on to my epiphany for I, I say epiphany because that's what I had I had an epiphany my listeners I was driving down the road one day uh, about three days ago, and it hit me because I was ranting within my own mind while driving. You know, it's it's very easy, it's, it's very uh, cathartic, cathartic, cathartic. It's soothing to the mind. It's very relaxing. It gets me in the the zen, as the the kids say. But I was driving, ranting. The storm in my own mind being let loose upon my thoughts. And then it hit me. How big the W Russia's about to take is. Because 
and I'll have to provide a little bit of context as to how I got here. Uh, I think you'll I think you'll see where I'm coming from. I think I I really think you'll see where I'm coming from, and I know for a fact that no one's really talking about this, even though people are talking about the things that lead up to it. I had an epiphany, and I'm going to share it with you, and it's all about demographics, specifically the consequences of those demographics and their shifts that are happening right now. Uh, sort of, and I, I guess that's sort of in theme with the rest of the episode, which is the consequences of actions, uh, the long-term consequences of actions. But I was thinking about the last few chapters in an audiobook that I was listening to on the Crimean War. So we're already we're already in a a very related and relevant subject here. But I was listening to an audiobook on the Crimean War, and I'd finally gotten to the the last few chapters of it. And as it went over the ending phases of the war, it talked about the mass exodus of the Tatars. Uh, the Tatars are a Turkic Muslim ethnic minority, which are still present in Russia today but not very much so in Crimea. As the war went on, the Tatars began to flee the peninsula. They began fleeing early on, when the war began, uh, after a few rebellions against Russia, because they thought that the countries coming in were going to liberate them from Russia. The Russians put them down and prepared for an invasion to come eventually. But, as the war got going, and the, the British and the French and the, the Ottomans landed and started taking territory and pushing Russia back, the Tatars began to flee the peninsula. And it was it started as a trickle, then it turned into a little bit of a, a flow, a stream, but that gradually accelerated into a mass exodus as the war went on. And it became a mass exodus towards the the very end. But even when the war concluded, and Crimea was left to Russia again, and this is the, the big part, when Crimea was left to Russia and not, like, taken away from them, or turned into, like, a, a buffer state between Russia and Turkey, a, a massive number of Tatars fled the area, fearing reprisals and general revenge for having collaborated with the invading powers, Britain, France, Piedmont, the Ottomans. And there were still reprisals. But what this mass exodus did was it depopulated Crimea of people who were anti-Russian in their stance. And this audiobook also mentioned how the Russian government after this mass exodus, actively incentivized loyal populations to settle the land in their place, giving away, almost for free, and in some cases literally for free, land and farms that used to belong to the Tatars. But let's, so let's come back to the present for a little bit, because now let's apply that context. I mentioned earlier, earlier on in the episode, that over 5 million Ukrainians, the UN said over 5 million Ukrainians had fled the country. Ukraine 
had a pre-war population of 45 million people. And of that, one in three were ethnic Russians. So that would be 15 million people. Leaving the remaining two-thirds ethnic Ukrainians. So that's 30 million people. Now remember what I said about the mass exodus of the Tatars and the resettlement of their land by Russians. If 5 million people have fled Ukraine, it was five and a half, and at the time of my epiphany, I thought it was somewhere between three to four million. So over 5 million people fled during the war, uh, during the invasion of their country. Are they more likely to be A, ethnic Ukrainians who have left, or B, ethnic Russians. They're most likely going to be ethnic Ukrainians. But if the Ukrainians are leaving, then that means that the ethnic Ukrainians who are still left now represent a smaller portion of the population in Ukraine, while ethnic Russians, along with Ukrainians who align themselves more with Russia, they become a bigger proportion of the population. The pie shrinks, but if the anti-Russian side gets smaller and the pro-Russian side stays the same, then the pro-Russian side becomes bigger relative to the anti-Russian side. And before the war, it was a ratio of two to one Ukrainians to Russians. Uh, and that's already been dropped down to 1.6 to one. So that's a massive drop and it's probably going to keep dropping because people are still fleeing. The relationship has changed that much with just the Ukrainians who have already left. And again, this is assuming that most of them are anti-Russian in their sentiments, you know. But with that assumption in place, the war is still not over yet. So we can expect at least another two to three million to flee before the war ends at the rate that it's going and even the war ending likely won't be the end of the exodus either it might slow down because the fighting will be intense or, or maybe it might accelerate because people are who are stuck due to bad infrastructure and destroyed you know roads and rails and ports they might be able to get out and they'll choose to leave it it can go either way but the exodus probably won't stop after the war does. Uh, well, immediately after. It won't stop immediately after the war. It'll stop eventually, but not immediately after the war. If you, Especially if Ukraine gets annexed in its entirety. Because then what you'll have are Ukrainians who don't want to live under Russia. Who stayed. Uh, now being presented with Russian rule. And they're going to choose to leave. A, a good number of them are going to choose to leave, so they, they weren't even a part of the exodus before, but now they will be. So when the war is over, you're going to have even more people continuing to flee. But at the same time, when the war is over, there will undoubtedly be plenty of Russians who will move into Ukraine. And these are likely people who will have lived there before the fall of the Soviet Union. Who would be returning to what would be to them their home and the influx of russians from contemporary russia 
would also tilt the demographic balance in their own favor against ethnic Ukrainians and the anti-Russian parts of the Ukrainian population, which would turn them into a minority within their own region. We could be witnessing a repeat of what happened to the Tatars in that respect, where they flee to somewhere else, and the land that they used to inhabit gets resettled by Russians. So that alone diminishes greatly the prospect of guerrilla war, the, the, the great partisan warfare that people expect is going to happen against Russia. If all the Ukrainians are fleeing, well then, who's going to be there to fight the guerrilla war? There's not going to be anybody. Certainly not enough to win. Not if, not if they end up being outnumbered two to one by the time the, the exodus is over. And what happens after that? Well, with the hostile populations having chosen to leave on their own accord, well, that makes rebuilding and settling and developing Ukraine easier and faster. And I'd imagine one of the first things that Russia is going to look towards is those offshore natural gas reserves in the Black Sea, uh, the ones off the shores of Ukraine that they previously didn't have access to, but they will now after the war. And Russia specializes in gas extraction. Having access to that and those deposits would enable them to, one, capitalize on the incredibly high oil prices, and two, it would give them flexibility in their energy production, as the wells in the Black Sea can be turned on and off with much greater ease than those in Siberia, because the ones in Siberia will freeze if you leave them alone for too long. It would make Russia less vulnerable to sudden price drops as they could cut production in the Black Sea to avoid and mitigate uh, deficits caused by wells running at a loss, as in the, the money made from the gas and oil sales would be less than the operating costs uh, per well. So it would give them greater flexibility and therefore you know, greater strength and economic staying power on the energy front, which is Russia's greatest strength and weakness. Uh, it's incredible energy supplier. Their status is a massive energy supplier. It's a strength and an Achilles heel. When prices fall too low, they get shit on. But when prices are high, they make off like bandits like they're doing right now. So having that flexibility would put them in a much better position. But there's also rare earth in western Ukraine too. So there's the potential of having major mining operations there. And due to the well-rivered nature of Ukraine and the distance between those deposits and the Black Sea ports, that would make it moving moving the, the minerals and the materials by water and by river to the ports where they could be loaded up and then sent out to the, the wider world. It would make transportation costs way lower than a lot of other places where you're going to get rare earth. So with those transportation costs being lower and the ports being right there, you have a good recipe for Russian rare earth to be cheaper 
or at the very least cost competitive with some of the lowest suppliers. Uh, the, the lowest cost suppliers, let me, let me correct myself. So Russia's looking at some major economic windfalls in the annexation of Ukraine. And I, I bring that up because there are other analysts who say that Russia's going to be sitting atop a heap of ashes. And while that'll be true in the immediate aftermath, what they gain in the long term is a hell of a lot more than what we're even looking at today in terms of what Ukraine has. What Russia can build tomorrow is going to be far greater than what Ukraine has today and what Ukraine had yesterday, you know, metaphorically speaking. And they will build it. And goodness, that rare earth is going to come in handy. I mean, gas, grain, and fertilizer rose during in costs during the Ukraine war. But the war over Taiwan, that's probably most likely going to come at some point in the future, probably near future, because America's distracted and it's a perfect opportunity to go after Ukraine right now. Uh, Ukraine. A perfect opportunity for China to go after Taiwan right now. It's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. And the war over Taiwan will see chips and semiconductors rise in price ridiculously. And that will have similar effects in grinding global economies to a halt. It will also force countries to start making their own chips. Something that, granted, we all should have been doing a long time ago, but chose not to do. But it'll it'll force countries to get off their ass and, you know, sacrifice that comfortability and that, you know, that ease of access, that convenience in exchange for economic security and domestic production. So it'll force that to happen. And economies will have to not just make their own chips. Uh, Economies, countries will not just have to make their own chips domestically. But you have to switch your economy over to using those domestically made chips too. Because if you make chips in order to be self-sufficient in terms of chip and semiconductor production, but the chips you make are not used in your country, well, then you've defeated the purpose of self-sufficiency because you'd be reliant on chips that you're not making. And that just ruins the whole purpose. It's great for making money, but not great for economic stability. So, in a world where you have to make at least some of the things that you need, semiconductors are definitely going to be high on the list of things to produce for countries who can produce them. And Russia will have the minerals it needs to become a major chip producer itself, let alone self-sufficient. It'll be able to export that on top of the rare earth, the minerals. So these two wars that we're looking at over Ukraine and over Taiwan, they will permanently shatter globalization as we know it. And Russia in particular, given all the things that we see coming at it in the short and long term, Russia will emerge as the first post-globalized state and great power 
in a deglobalizing world. That was that was my epiphany. That was my epiphany. It, it hit me like a train when I thought about the numbers of Ukrainians leaving, and I say, "Whoa, wait a second! If they're all leaving, and the Russians are moving in, well, that th- that makes it easier for the Russians to settle the land. It's it, in a word, ethnic cleansing. But you know, it's it's the Russians aren't just going out killing Ukrainians. The, the Ukrainians are just leaving." So I guess that's the best kind of ethnic cleansing. If there's <laughs> if there's a good kind of ethnic cleansing to begin with, you know, let let me not get caught saying some weird shit on this podcast. But but alas, that was my. Uh, it took me a really long time to write all that down, which is why, which is why I've been late today on the upload. But I got it out. But I got it out, and you know. At least the meat is thicker than it usually is. So there's that. But that is all I've got for you today. And I hope you've enjoyed today's juicy broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.